in many parts of the world, prerequisite to being a pastor is being willing to take a beating. It's a very different experience, isn't it? Let's pray for a moment for the persecuted church around the world, and then we'll continue with this morning's message. Father, again, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters today all around the world who are experiencing hardship and suffering because of their faith. We thank you, Father, that you are able to hold them and uphold them and sustain them and keep them faithful in circumstances that we can't even imagine. And we thank you that through their difficulty and even their suffering, you are spreading the good news of Jesus. And while, Lord, we would choose other ways if we could, we would choose easier, more glorious, more attractive ways to spread your good news. You've seen fit to do so through suffering, through difficulty. And so we would ask that you would help us to be participants in that work through prayer, through giving, through being mindful of the broader church. Now, Lord, as we consider your word, we would ask for your help, your insight. Lord, would you humble us and give us a sense of your greatness today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start uh, with just a reading of Scripture, Isaiah 48. I do think that um, the pastor, the preacher, that the role is primarily to expound Scripture, to put Scripture out there and try to explain it and apply it to our lives. And I think, by and large, that should be the pattern. And so, uh, that, and that is what Pastor Steve does and seeks to do week in and week in and week out. That being said, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking weeks to to consider more of a topic or a theme or a or an idea. And in in those weeks, Steve will still work very hard to ground it in Scripture. But for me, as a fill-in speaker, well, I can kind of do what I want. So that's really what I'm going to do. Let's read Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, beginning in verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called... Oh, I'm going to read up here. You who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah... You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourself citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about. 
My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. You have never, neither heard nor understood. From of old, your ears have not been open. Well, do I know how treacherous you are? You were called a rebel from birth. For my own namesake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Well, the title of my message today, if I was to give it a title, would simply be Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone glory. And this is the last part in a series of sermons on the Reformation. And some of you are saying, thank goodness. This is really the sixth and last part of a series of sermons where we've considered themes from the Reformation. And, and the importance is not that they come from the Reformation. The importance is that we believe they articulate and preserve and protect biblical truth. And Steve has referenced uh, the solas of the Reformation. Sola is just a Latin word that means alone or only. So we've really looked at slogans uh, from the Reformation uh, that crystallize important truths. And if, we're, if I was to quiz you, could you produce them all? Well, maybe not, but solo gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And we come to the fifth and final today, soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. Doing okay, Aries? Thanks. Keep my, keep my mic. Yeah, wave at me if the mic's going around. Okay. So we're considering this fifth and final sola. Now, I will say this. The Reformers, they never summed up their teaching with these five tidy little slogans. Uh, this kind of came over time as people tried to clarify, you know, what was the heart of the issue? Why would these people break from the church, in a sense, splinter and fracture Christianity in, in the West. Why would they do such an arrogant thing? And it was because of these five key ideas. And specifically, all of these ideas, these solas, are, are, are prepositional phrases that modify the clause or the idea of justification. That is... How do sinful people stand justified? How are they made right with God? And the reformers answered, we are justified before God by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone, through the means of faith alone, for the ultimate glory of God alone alone as taught with final authority 
and Scripture alone. So do you see the package? They, none of them really hang by themselves. It all goes together. Christ, grace, faith, Scripture, it's all God's glory. You could rearrange the order, but they all go together. And so my assignment today is focus on this last sola or soli deo gloria. And so I want to address three questions, and truthfully, I can't even answer them very well. I'm just going to try to. Try to answer three questions best I can. And here they are. First, what is the glory of God? Second, why does God seek his own glory? And third, how is God glorified in saving sinful people? Try to answer these questions best I can. So first, what is the glory of God? You know, part of the problem growing up in church or being in church a long time is we adopt language that really, if we were pressed to define, we'd be in trouble. (laughs) What is glory? What is God's glory? We've used that word numerous times this morning. What does it mean? Well, the truth is, it's, it's rather hard to define. Uh, glory, I think we can safely say as we look in the Old and New Testament, refers to excellence and praiseworthiness put on display. One person defines glory as the visible splendor and moral beauty of God's manifold perfections. Which, that's a, when you define a word with even harder words, that becomes problematic. <laughs> that's, a, that's a problem with theologians. I'm going to make the definition harder than the word itself. Every attribute of God is part of his glory. So in the fall, when we did a, a series in the adult Sunday school class, we talked about uh, kind of the attributes of God and God is holy, and and, and God is righteous, and God is just, and God is loving, and God is gracious, and God is good. All of these things are different facets of his glory. And so I think it's very, it's appropriate at the end of the day to say God's glory is his essence. It is who he is. It's not something separate from him, but it's it's an attempt to express his essence. And I think I can support that from Scripture in a lot of places. Consider Exodus 33. Moses asked God, what? Show me your glory. Well, what's, what's he asking? Show me some flashy display? Well, there was something of a flashy display, but that really wasn't what Moses was getting at. Show me who you are. Show me yourself. Show me your glory. And as you know, the story, God says, well, You can't see my face and live, so I'll put you in this rock and I'll cover you. And as I pass by, you'll see my backside. You're like, what is going on here? But clearly the idea is God's glory is something so amazing, so overwhelming, that Moses can only endure some kind of indirect exposure. The glory of God. Jonathan Edwards... I'll reference a different person from history. Got a lot of Luther last week. I apologize. Jonathan Edwards, he's probably America's only... (laughs) It's kind of embarrassing. If you go into theological studies, the truth is uh, America hasn't produced much for theologians. 
So Jonathan Edwards is about as close as we get to a serious theologian, uh, and he lived in the 1700s. But he wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. And he, and he tries to answer this question. What's God's ultimate purpose in everything that he does? And, and he surveys scripture, and he goes through reason and all these different things. And, and I think the answer is probably on the tip of some of our tongues. God's chief and ultimate end in all things is his own glory. Why did God create? Why does God redeem to display his glory? And this display finds unique expression in the happiness and joy of his people. It's just hard to get around. I mean, if you read the Bible, it's all over the place. Psalm 19.1, a verse some of us know, the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, I don't know if you've heard this challenge to Christian faith sometimes. Uh, it makes sense on the surface, but it's very simplistic. It says, consider the universe. It's so vast. I mean, it's, 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 it, apparently it's expanding. It keeps getting bigger. And in view of this vast universe, the earth, even our solar system, is so small, so insignificant. How can you say that God created all things and God created people in his own image? People are so insignificant in this vast universe. To which I think the Christian responds, God didn't create the universe to glorify people. God created the universe to glorify himself. And the fact that we're so small (laughs) in the vastness of it should be a reminder of that. The heavens declare the, the glory of God. Isaiah, as we read in Isaiah 48, Isaiah is very heavy on this theme in various places and Chapter 43, he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And we get to the New Testament, and this theme carries on in places like Ephesians 1, where we read, God works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Romans 11, for him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So I think it's very true and maybe even hard for us to, to hear at times, but when we ask questions like, why did God... Why does God, at least in, in one sense, the final answer, sometimes the only answer the Bible gives us is for his own glory. And I think if we're honest, that that's not always a very satisfying answer, is it? So what do we do with that? What do we do with this idea that in all things, God is seeking his glory? Again, I, I, we've considered a little bit of what is God's glory, and I, 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 again, I, words fail. But I think a more pressing question for some of us is why does God seek his own glory? 
Is God a glory hog? And this bothers us. I think we'd all say, well, it's, it's right for God to be praised, but it doesn't seem quite right for God going out looking for praise. Seeking praise. And I think that's our response because, well, of our experience, our experience with people. We don't like people who are always drawing attention to themselves. Right? I mean, we're all guilty of this, but, what, but we, we really find it annoying in other people. And that's when whatever you say, they come back with their experience. Well, I was going through this. Well, there's this one time I had that happen. I was going through this. There's this one kind of one-upping everything, right? And it's exhausting. And we all probably do it a little bit, but we don't like when other people do it. And we don't like when other people draw attention to their, their abilities or their skills or their, their wealth or whatever it is. We, it's just bad for people to draw attention to themselves. And I think if we're honest, and, and we will often say this maybe to make ourselves feel better, but it's true, you know, that person who's so arrogant, who's so self-focused, they're really, they're really insecure, right? I mean, honestly, and that often is. The person is insecure. They're inauthentic. They're trying to live off the compliments and praises of other people, and we don't like that. Well, I don't think God seeks our praise, our attention, because he's insecure. In fact, rest assured, God is not insecure. God is not weak, and God has no deficiencies. We read in Acts 17 where Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is not looking for our praise because he needs something. Because he's insecure. Okay, we can set that one aside, I think. Uh, Again, to reference a study of God's character and a study of God, there's an old term, and we don't use it anymore, but I I think it's helpful. Aseity, that is God's self-existence. God brings everything else into existence, but he in no way depends on or needs it. In fact, it's only a one-way thing, right? The universe, all creation depends on God for its existence, but, but the opposite is not true. It's kind of a one-way street. But there's another reason we don't like glory hogs. And and this is a reason, I think, that even very sincere Christians wrestle with this idea of God's glory. People who seek their own glory are not only insecure, they're, they're also not loving. They're unloving. They're so self-focused, they don't care much about what happens to other people, Right? That's what really bugs you about an arrogant person is they don't care about anybody else. There's no love. So this raises a very difficult question. If God makes it his ultimate goal to be glorified and praised, how can he be loving? 
You understand the question there? I mean, this, is, this is hard stuff. <laughs> Look at the Bible. God seems to be, he's about his glory. We've been singing, giving him glory. If God is seeking his glory, how can he be loving? And this is, this is where theology can be our friend. Let's think through this. What could God give to you to enjoy that would show him the most loving? What could God give? And I know we're giving my daughter a hard time here. She's making fun of me. What could God give to us to enjoy to show himself loving? And I know we'll fill in the blank. Give me money. Give me this. He could give me that. That would mean God loves me. But the truth is, if God is supremely valuable, of infinite worth, of infinite perfection, then the most loving thing he can give you is himself. So there is no conflict between God seeking his glory and, and, and seeking our joy and good. They are wrapped up together. In seeking his glory, he is loving us. If God would give us the best, the most satisfying thing, that is, if he would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself for contemplation and fellowship. God is after us to give us what is best, not prestige or comfort or wealth or health, but a full-blown vision of him and fellowship with him. And so to be supremely loving God must give us what will be best for us and delight us most. He must give us himself. And this only applies to God. (laughs) In all other cases, if somebody's seeking their own glory, it detracts from others. It's selfish. It can be petty. But when God seeks his own glory, it is the most loving thing possible. Uh, these ideas, you know, they grew out of the Reformation to some extent, and they found, I think, crystallization in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And again, these are a bunch of old, dead people. Long time ago. But a catechism was really just a way of learning basic truth and memorizing it. So the Shorter Catechism begins like this. What is the chief end of man? What's the, pers- what's the purpose of humanity? What are we here for? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Certainly, I think it's one of the most profound statements outside of Scripture. Our existence, the purpose of our existence, our lives, all the things we go through, the, the big picture purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And uh, if you're familiar with a, a pastor named John Piper, and, and I, I will just say this. The one thing I think he has done well is he said, you know what? Do you know how we glorify God? We glorify God by enjoying him. 
Sometimes we think that like our joy, our happiness, our fulfillment, and God's glory are two different things. And the problem, the reason we think that is we are looking to the wrong things to bring us joy, happiness, fulfillment. So our greatest joy, our greatest delight, and God's glory come together. Okay, so that's the second point where I think God seeks his glory in all things. And I don't, in saying that, I can't explain a lot, right? I mean, how is God glorified in, in some of the horrible things that happen in the world? How is God glorified in the horrible things that happen in even our lives? And I, I think there's a pastoral element that we have to say, we just don't know. We don't know. But at the highest level, the big picture level, we can believe and trust that God is working all things for our good and his glory. Well, this brings us to our third and final point. How is God glorified in saving sinful people? And this takes us back to the Reformation one final time, I promise. One final time. Because Soli Deo Gloria wasn't just another sola. It really was a summary. It was the main thing. Why does God choose to save, to rescue people in Christ by grace, through faith, and make this known in the scriptures? Because that's what brings him glory. That's what they're saying in this final sola. Salvation is of the Lord. And uh, Steve had referenced one time Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. I have a copy if you want to read it. It's pretty difficult, actually. Tried getting through it several times and given up. But I will say, I've read enough to know this. For all Luther's faults, which were many, He does kind of, at the end of the day, clarify for him, why does he break with Rome? Why does he break with the Catholic Church, which was the church? Why does he do it? And at the end of the day, this is is what it is for Luther. Salvation is 100% the work of God. And if, you're, if we're fair to Roman Catholic doctrine, the truth is, is uh, Catholic theology always says salvation is by grace. But the question is, is how do we access that grace? And so in, in, in the Catholic system, there's faith plus various things. It's by grace through faith plus various things. And so you might say, Catholic theology might, it's 99% God, 1% us. And Luther's like, no, it's 100% God. It's 0% us. That really, we would break, I think, today if, if we were to go and worship with our brothers and sisters who love Jesus uh, here in, in Ray with them at the Catholic Church, we would feel uncomfortable about a lot of other things. Uh, The nature of the service, the Mass, the Eucharist, the priest. There would be a lot of things that would bother us. But for Luther, at the end of the day, it was salvation is 100% God. And all of this stuff is a way that 
man is trying to carve out a percentage for himself. And so the main issue from the Reformation, sometimes we say, well, that's faith versus works. Well, that, that's actually not the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is who is ultimately behind, beneath, and driving our salvation. And so you could ask, I think, a guy or, or a, a woman coming down the Reformation period, you could ask him these questions. Do you believe that we must respond to the gospel in repentance and faith? And they would answer, yes. The Bible says, repent and believe the good news. Do you believe that saving faith involves commitment, loyalty, allegiance, and obedience? Absolutely. Faith means not just believing as in knowing, but committing myself to Jesus. Do you believe that we must continue in faith and good works to be saved? Yes. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. And we would say, well, then how can you say that salvation is 100% God? You've just said we have to do all these things. To which I believe the answer is, I do all these things, yet it isn't me, but the grace of God working in me. Everything I have and do that is of any value before God is a gift of God. This was the reformer's concern with soli deo gloria. And you might, and I, it opened discussion, did they go too far? Did they focus so much on God's glory that, that it resulted in people not taking faith and commitment and obedience and good works seriously? I suppose an argument can be made that that's possible. But this was kind of their litmus test, and I think it could offer value to us. Is your understanding of the Bible, of the gospel, of theology, how do you know if it's on the right track? And the reformers would say, does it lay you low before God? Does it despair of any hope of you saving yourself? Does it give you no reason to look down on any other person? And does it give all praise to God? The reformer would say, well, you may not have the details right, but you're going the right direction. But to ask the question another way, is our, is our thinking about the Bible and the gospel and theology, does it, does it promote pride? Does it promote judgment? Does it detract from God's glory in salvation in some way, the reformers would say, you're going the wrong direction. You're going the wrong direction. And so that, friends, is the best I can do to summarize why these men and women would be so arrogant to break the unity of the church and to go off and do their thing. And certainly the Reformation has unleashed all kinds of individualism. And now we've got churches and splits and churches and more splits. And, and it, I think it should grieve our hearts that there isn't greater unity among Christians. And we should work towards visible unity.
But the question, at least for a Luther or a Calvin, and we may not completely agree with them, but the issue for them is, at the end of the day, is it 100% God? Is it 100% God? Does he get all the glory? The last words that Luther is, I don't know that he even spoke because he was about to die. Uh, but his last words are reportedly, and I think he probably grabbed a piece of paper and wrote this down. He wrote, We are beggars. It is true. Let us pray. Father, our, our sinfulness expresses itself in wanting to make ourselves the center, the focus, in wanting glory for ourselves. And it's described most clearly in the word pride. And yet your gospel, the good news comes to us and the first thing it does is it takes out all of our support, everything that's holding up our pride, and it dashes it to the ground. And it says that if we're to be right with God, if we are to know you and to have eternal life, it comes only through what Jesus has done for us. And even more, if we are to grow and, and, and walk with you and be obedient, it is your grace and your Holy Spirit working in us. And so there's no place for pride. None. And there's no place to look down on other people who don't know you, who are different from us, who we believe are wrong on various things. There's no place for that. And Lord, help us as your people to genuinely bring you glory. To point all people to you. To give you recognition and credit for all that is good and right and beautiful in our lives because you are the source of these things. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that in doing this, we find joy. We find satisfaction that nothing else can offer. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. Amen.